as we come to the book of James, we just, we just, it's just such a great privilege to have your word. All 66 books, Lord, the, that, that we know are inspired. All 66 books have come forth by your Holy Spirit through holy men of God, Lord. That's what we're told in the scripture, and we believe that. And, and Lord, uh, there's some people who would say James doesn't belong uh, in the uh, canon of inspiration uh, but, Lord, we know it does. And I, I think, uh, Lord, if, if we'll open our uh, hearts to this book and, and open our minds and, and, and look at it objectively and be willing to obey the truths that are here, Lord, that, that uh, our lives can be totally changed. Lord, with, that we can learn to walk by faith. We learned about faith in the book of Hebrews, but, Lord, in, in, in this great book of James, we're going to learn how to walk in that faith during difficult times, Lord. And, and we all face difficult times. And so, Lord, I know this book is applicable for us, and I know that it can only uh, bless us and, and, and become part of who we are if, if your Holy Spirit teaches us. So I ask that, uh, Lord, that you just, you be a great part of this study uh, in our hearts and minds and in all that I say here, Lord. I just ask for a blessing of your Holy Spirit as we embark on this great book. And so uh, we, just, we just pray for those things, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Well, last week, I mean, we finished, I think, one of my favorite books in the Bible. And, and uh, you talk about being on a mountaintop. In the book of Hebrews, you're on a theological mountaintop. I mean, we were told how we can... Uh, enter the holiest of holies into the very presence of God by, through the blood of Jesus Christ by faith. Uh, and not only that, we were literally taken up on the mountaintop. You remember in chapter number 12, he, he showed us when we come to the Lord where we come. He says in chapter 12, he says, We come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just man made perfect, to Jesus Christ the mediator of a new covenant. Uh, I mean, what a great place to be. You know, I don't ever want to come down from there. I want to go to that mountaintop to where Jesus is, to where the angels are. I want to be, live on Mount Zion. But even though we can dwell there spiritually and we can positionally be there, more often than not, it's down in the valley we go. And, and that's where James comes in. I mean, James is a great book about living life, the Christian life, down in the valley. In fact, I've entitled this series on James, uh, The Valley of Practicality. And that's really what the book is all about. I mean, whereas in Hebrews we get this great theology. Well, in James, uh, uh, you don't get a devotional book. You don't get so much deep theology. What he does, he shows us how to practically live the Christian life uh, as, uh, as we walk through this world. And so, so it's, a, it's a very practical book. And some people don't like it because of that. Uh, James sort of reminds me of the revivalist who used to come to town when I was a young boy. I don't know if you were, uh, have ever experienced some of these hellfire and brimstone revivalists, but man, I mean, they could preach. 
They could really preach, but their method was to scare people into repentance. And it worked. I remember as a boy, I mean, it scared me. I was too scared to go forward, too scared to move. But there were a lot of people, I think they got saved 10 or 15 times when these guys would come through. They scared them so much. And as when I got saved by grace and became a preacher of grace, I, I began to sort of look down on these guys because I, I, I saw them as having way too much emphasis on morality and law and not enough on grace. But over the years, what I've come to learn is they have a place in God's plan because they are the tutors that lead us to Christ. And so whenever I sound like I'm preaching hellfire and brimstone, I'm trying to imitate these guys, but I, I can't do it. So maybe we need to get one in, in here every once in a while. Well, James is of that line. He sometimes comes off, and you're going to see it in this book, he sometimes comes off as a hellfire and brimstone preacher. And what that has done, it has caused some scholars over the year to, to say that James doesn't belong in the canon. In fact, the great Martin Luther didn't believe that James belonged in the canon. He called it a, a rather strawy epistle. That's, that was his reference to it. In other words, it, it was, should go up in flames or it, 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 you, you chew it like straw. It just doesn't go down well. And, and uh, so he didn't think it belonged in the canon. And, and one of the reasons some people didn't believe that it belonged in the canon is because they, and some people still today don't believe it belongs in the canon, because they believe that it teaches salvation by works. But let me tell you right now, and you're going to see this, when we go through James, James does not teach salvation by works. What he does teach is that faith works. Real faith works. Real faith produces good works. And that's what he says in that verse I think you're all familiar with, uh, which is kind of the theme of the book over in James chapter 2. He says, faith without works is dead. So if we have real faith, then, then we should have real works. And if we don't, if those works aren't evident in our life, then maybe we aren't truly saved. And that's the point he's going to make in the book. That's why James says in, in the first chapter, in verse, num verse number 22, chapter number 1, he says, Be ye doers of the word, and not just hearers, deceiving yourselves. You know, if all you are is a hearer of the word, if all you do is listen to the word, and you never apply it to your life, then you might very well be deceiving yourself. I think there are a lot of people in Christendom who have accepted the facts of the gospel, who ex accept the word as truth, but they never have really put their faith in that word. And if you've really put your faith in that word, you're going to be born again and you're going to be changed, and that's going to produce real works because you have real faith. Well, what does real faith look like? And that's why... I, Ask them to pass out a bulletin for everybody today. On the back of your bulletins, there's an outline of the book of James. And the way I outlined it was by uh, uh, showing you these marks of real faith. If you look at the outline on the back of your bulletins, look at some of these things. Real faith is faith that endures trials with joy. All of you do that, right? Don't lie. Amen. Faith, real faith is faith that does not doubt God. You never doubt God, right? Real faith is faith that stays true to God during trials. Real faith doesn't just hear the word, it does the word. Real faith is impartial, treats all people the same. Real faith works, 
It works because it works in your life, but it also produces works. Real faith controls the tongue. See, that's, I know I have real faith. Y'all aren't supposed to laugh at that. Real, real, real faith is live near God, not the world. Real faith is not judgmental. You know, everybody, people talk about James being judgmental. He's not judgmental. He's trying to pull some people out of the fire. That's not being judgmental. Uh, real faith numbers the days. Real faith realizes that life is short. Real faith is not focused on worldly riches. Oh, this, we, all, we all qualify here. Real faith is patient. Real faith is marked by integrity. Real faith is praying faith. And, and here's what I like about James. He doesn't just say pray. He tells us that when we pray, we get answers to our prayers. I mean, if you pray and you never get any answers to your prayer, you probably don't have real faith. Because real faith gets answers to prayers. It's not always yes. But you get answers to your prayers. And I like this. Real faith is healing faith. People who say God's not in the healing business anymore, they, they got a different God from the God I have. Real faith believes that God can heal. Real faith, finally, is witnessing faith. So you take a look at these marks of real faith, and if our faith has no similarities to these, or if there's no movement toward these marks, if we're missing the mark all of the time, or we have no desire to, to hit these marks, then maybe we don't have real faith at all. And that's what I think James wants to show us in this book. Now, you talk about the right guy to, to write this book. James was the right guy to write this book. You know who James is? You know who he is? Well, he was, the, he was a pillar of the church, the early church. He was the, the elder, the chief elder of the church of Jerusalem. I mean, I, I think he was kind of considered like the Pope. You know, I hate to even use that word, but I mean, he was like the head guy. When Paul had a dispute, where did he go? He went to James. And one of the reasons James had all of this authority was that he was the son of Joseph and Mary. He was Jesus' brother. I mean, you talk about a guy who knew some things, I mean, he was Jesus' brother. Paul refers to James in, in Galatians 1.19 as the Lord's brother. And you know what? I think James had watched his brother. Now, it took James a while before he got saved. And, and James wasn't saved at first, but he watched his brother. And, he, and his heart was open to what his brother was doing. And, and he watched his brother being butchered on a cross. He watched what happened there. And you know, later on, when he's a Christian, and he sees these people who call themselves, or taking the name of Christ, because when we call ourselves Christians, we take the name of Christ. And he was seeing these people who were taking the name of Christ, and yet there was no change in their conduct or their character. They still were living godless, selfless, selfish, rather, worldly lives. And so I think it made him mad. And I think by the tone of the book, you're going to see that it made him mad. And so from this valley of the, his broke, I believe it's because his heart was broken that he was mad. And from this valley of his broken heart came this great book on true faith in action. Now, as far as the date of the book, it's kind of interesting. We, we know from Acts that, that James was martyred. 
Josephus tells us that he was martyred in 62 AD. So that means that the book was written sometimes before that, a few years before that. Most scholars date it somewhere around 46 to 49 uh, AD, which makes it one of the earliest uh, writings in the New Testament. So, so it's a very important book, and it was used early on by the church. All right, with that said, let's dig into this thing. With that introduction, let's dig into the book. Let's see what it says. It says, James, a pillar of the church, the brother of the Lord, the elder of the church of Jerusalem, the one who tells the apostles what to do. No, he doesn't take on any of those titles, does he? Look what he says. James, a bond servant. In other words, he puts himself on the same plane as us. I'm a bond servant. I'm a servant by my free will, a bond servant of, of my brother. He doesn't use that there either, does he? Of my Lord. Hey, we're all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ if we've been born again. Jesus said, these are, these are my brothers. These are my sisters. And James became one of those brothers. And he recognized that. He recognized there was nothing in having the blood of Mary in him, which Jesus had too. There's, there was nothing in that that made him special. It was the fact that he had made Jesus his Lord. And so uh, he says, uh, James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes, and he, which those are the Jewish tribes, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. He's talking about the diaspora. He's talking about the Jews who had been scattered throughout the world. And he's writing to these Jews. Now, just as Paul was kind of the apostle to the Gentiles, James was an apostle to the Jews as Peter was an apostle to the Jews. But he's speaking to us too here. But, but those Jews were under special persecution at that time because not only were they Jews, and most of the world hated Jews, well, the Jews hated Christians. And so they were getting a double whammy. They were being persecuted not only by the, by the Jews, but by, by, by the world too. And so, so they had it really rough. And so he, he speaks to them, and he immediately says, my brethren. Now, the very fact that he calls them brethren tells us what? He's speaking to to fellow believers and so he's speaking to us and then listen to what he says count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing when I first got saved Brenda and I got saved at the same time and we decided we were going to embark on this journey of memorizing scripture. And I don't know why we chose this passage, but this is the very first passage we memorized. And it was kind of almost the last because it didn't work out so well. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I mean, I don't know why God led us to memorize that passage. Maybe it was because he realized we were about to go in some various trials and we did. But counting it all joy, that's easier said than done. You know what I've learned over the years? You can memorize all the scriptures about joy you want to memorize, but that's not going to give you joy. It doesn't do it. You can, you can memorize this till you're blue in the face, and it's not going to bring you joy. Joy is what? Joy is a choice we make. That, that's why this is an imperative. I mean, it's a command. We're commanded to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. 
We have a choice when we fall into a trial. We can either count it joy or just let things go as they might go. But let me tell you what, they're not going to just go as they might go. You know what happens if you don't count it joy when you go into a trial? You're going to get bitter, and then bitterness leads to cynicism. That's where you're going to head. You have a choice. When you go into a trial, and I got news for you. Someone rightly said, you're either in a trial, or you're coming out of a trial, or you're going into a trial. That's the way it is. And that's the way it is, especially if you're a born-again believer. And so you make a choice when you go into that trial. You can count it all joy. You make that choice. I'm going to count this as joy no matter how difficult this trial is. Or you're going to get bitter and you're going to get angry. You're going to be losing your temper. And you're, going to be, you're, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be depressed. And you're going to turn cynical. That's the fruit of not counting it all as joy. Now, notice he says, when you fall into various trials, not if you fall into various trials. Then in verse 3, he tells us, he says, he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The reason you can count it all joy is that the testing of your faith produces patience. There's going to be something good out of this. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. We're told in Romans 8, 33. All things. And our trials especially work for our good. So we're to count them joy because we know that they're going to work good. And what good is that? That they're going to work at us? Something we all need. And that is patience. Patience. You know, I, if I were God, I would do it differently. I would just give out patience. You know, and just, just make it where you were forced to count it joy because you're just such a patient person. And I know some people that are more patient than I am. I know that's going to surprise some of you, but there are some out there. But we're to, we're to count it all joy because we know that it's through those trials that we're going we're gonna to get patience. And patience is a great thing because look at verse number four. He says, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be what? He's not talking about sanctification here, perfection, the, the perfection we talked about in Hebrews, but that you might be perfect. You might be like Christ, that you might be perfect in your character and in your strength and complete, lacking nothing. Now you talk about a deal. How do we let patience have its perfect work? How do we let patience have its perfect work? Well, by faith, we believe that all things are working together for our good. By faith, we believe, hey, I'm in a trial, but this trial is going to work good in me. This trial is going to make me patient. It's going to make me complete and perfect and ready for every good work. Because until you have patience, God cannot use you. We have to have patience. You know, you remember the Israelites, and they were wandering in the wilderness, and God had done all of these wonderful things for them. And, and they could have, I'm sure they could have quoted that verse, all things work together 
for the good of those who love the Lord and called according to his purpose because God is doing all these wonderful things for us. He's parted the Red Sea. He's drowned Pharaoh's army in the sea. And they went into the wilderness and they just they sang all of these hymns and just for the rest of those 40 years, they counted it all joy. No. No, what? They didn't count it all joy because they didn't remember what God had done for them. See, if you don't count it joy, you don't grab that, the lesson of that trial and you don't see, look for God's deliverance because God's going to deliver you out of every trial. I don't care what trial you go through. If you're a child of God, God's going to deliver you out of it. And if you look, mark that down in your heart and you say, man, I know my God's going to deliver me, then you're going to get patience in the next trial because you're going to be in the next trial and you're going to say, man, I can have joy in this trial because, hey, God delivered me out of the last trial. But if you forget the last trial, you don't learn your lesson from the last trial. You're going to be like the Israelites and they perished in the wilderness because they murmured and complained against God. And the reason they murmured and complained against God because they were impatient with God. They didn't, God wasn't doing things on their time schedule. He wasn't doing what they wanted him to do. And they were impatient with God and they all died in the wilderness because of what? One word, unbelief. And that's unbelief leads us to not trusting God. And if we don't trust God, we'll never have patience. And we'll never be used by God. And we will perish in the wilderness. So we've got to learn through these trials. So when we go into a trial, we've got to count it all joy. And the only thing we lack, once God makes us perfect and complete, and we're in these trials and we're counting them joy and we're patient in these trials, the only thing we lack is wisdom. Wisdom on how to get out of that trial. Wisdom on how to keep that trial from recurring again. Wisdom on what God is trying to teach me in that trial. Will God give us wisdom? Well, he promises to. Look at the next verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally without reproach and it will be given to him you know what I, I guess the thing that I've seen the most as a pastor for the last almost 15 16 years that really bothers me is how people don't seek God before they make decisions. And they get into all sorts of messes and then they cry out to God like, God, why did you do this to me? Now, I'm in that group too. How foolish are we if we don't seek God's wisdom? For every single decision we make, we need to seek God's wisdom. Why? Because God is omniscient. He knows the future. He knows if what the decision you're going to make is the right decision. He knows if it's going to be good for you or if it's going to make a mess of your life. He knows what's best for you. And guess what? He wants what's best for you because he loves you. And, and so he wants you to ask him before you make a decision. And he gives you an answer without reproach. You know what that means, without reproach? He doesn't get bad when you ask him whether you should do this or whether you should do that. In fact, he get, I believe it blesses his heart when you do that. 
You know, I have people, I've, I've heard pastors say, oh, man, you shouldn't test God like that. You, you, you're asking God too many times. You, 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 you see, you know, you need to ask it and go away. No, you need to ask and keep on asking, keep on seeking until God gives you the wisdom that you're asking for. And he will give you the, that wisdom. You know, here's the problem. There are a lot of people in Christendom who are for all practical purposes deist. There's some of you that are deist. There's some of you that, that, that you treat God as if God is way up there. He's created things. He's set things in motion. And now you're to make all your choices and you're to do the very best you can. And if you get in a really lot of trouble, then you need to call on God. You know, it's like that verse in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. God helps those who ask God to help him. From the very beginning, always are asking God to help him. Yes, God is transcendent. transcendent. He is holy other. He's holy, holy, holy. He's way out there and beyond everything. But God is also imminent. That means he's personal. He's everywhere. He lives in my heart. And if he lives in my heart, he wants to be part of my life. And he wants to be part of every single decision that I make. So we want to consult him. We want to ask him before we buy that car. Before we take that job. Before we marry that woman. I mean, before we do anything of any significance... We're to seek the wisdom of God. And look at the promise there. What a great promise. He promises that if we ask for wisdom, he will give it to us. You know, David says something in the Psalms. He says, I was once young and now I'm old. But I have never seen a righteous man begging for bread. You know what? I, I can say the same thing. And I can say something else. I was once young and now I'm old. But I have never seen a Christian who diligently sought God for wisdom that didn't get that wisdom. Not one single time. Not one single time. And in my life, whenever I've wanted God's wisdom, a lot of times I, I don't really want his wisdom because he might tell me something I don't want to hear. But whenever I've sought God for diligently for wisdom, he's always given me that wisdom and he's given it to me in a way that I had no doubt that it was him I remember when I finished my MDiv at seminary I was waiting for all the calls and no calls came you know I was one of these believers that 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 uh, that believed that if God wanted you to pastor he would call you and somehow supernaturally some church would want me and they would call me and I didn't get a call and, and it, my, my feelings were hurt and I kept asking God what do you want me to do you want me to send out resumes and, and I, was, I could clearly hear him say no I said Lord do you want me to do you, what do you want me to do and I had some professors when I was finishing my MDiv asked me if I was going in the PhD program and I said no way I will never go into the Ph.D. program. Well, I'm praying to the Lord, and I'm saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? And no calls, or I'm getting no calls. The door's shut. Well, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I heard the devil 
say, I want you to work on a PhD. I thought it was the devil. You know how we blame those things on the devil when we hear things we don't want to hear. And I kept hearing, I want you to work on a PhD. And I had people come up to me, you need to work on a PhD. I'm not working on a PhD. So finally one day I went in, I went in to my prayer closet and I got on my knees and I said, Lord, if you want me to work on a PhD, let's make a deal. If you want me to work on a PhD, you get me a teaching job, account, a teaching accounting at a junior college somewhere near the seminary, and I'll work on a PhD. And my phone rang. <laughs> and I answered the phone, and the guy said, I'm so-and-so, I'm the chairman of the Department of Business at Nunez Community College. And we have your resume, and we were wondering if you wanted to teach accounting for us this semester. I'd sent that resume in three years before then when I'd gone to work on my MDF and had just blown it off. And at that very moment, God spoke to me. And I didn't like it. But I said, okay, I'll work on a PhD. You know, God speaks to us in all sorts of ways. I mean, you can get a word of wisdom from a friend. Listen to your friend. Sometimes God speaks through them, but he'll give you a word of wisdom. Sometimes it's a still, small voice. Now, now you know what? There is that danger when we're listening to a still, small voice. Is it the devil or is it God? So, so God wants us to have a sure word of wisdom. And so you can just keep on singing until you're sure that's God. Uh, it might be, you know, it might be a shut door. See, part of the word God was giving me in my situation was a shut door. And so if he shuts the door and you keep trying to kick the door open, hey, if it stays shut, don't bust it down or you're going to head, head for some trouble. Sometimes God is silent. He's silent. And when he's silent, he's speaking very loudly. Do you know what he's saying to you when he's silent? You keep doing just what you're doing until I tell you to do something different. That's what he's saying. Now, let me give you a couple of situations where God might not answer your prayer for wisdom. He won't give you wisdom when you already know the answer to the question you're asking. I mean, Lord, should I go into debt to buy that big new boat? The Lord's not going to answer that. You shouldn't go in debt to buy some big new boat. If you've gone into debt to buy some big new boat, you need to start asking God to ha how to get you out of debt. But, but uh, you know, there's certain things we know. Lord, should I shack up with that woman? No, you, you don't need to ask the Lord that. Lord, uh, should I quit my job? You remember the one, Lord, I prayed for and you got me? I don't like it anymore. Lord, should I quit that job now? He's not going to give you wisdom in that situation. And most people, you know what they do? They just quit and go to another job. And they never find the will of God when they do that. Lord, should I be kind to my neighbor? I don't like him. Should I be kind to him? You don't have to pray about that. You're to be kind to your neighbor. There's a lot of things we ask God for that we know the answer to before we even get on our knees. In fact, I can get ready I said I'm going to ask God about this and I go in my prayer room and as soon as I go to press I, I know the answer <laughs> I don't need to ask I know what God's going to tell me he's going to tell me no 
The second reason that sometimes we don't hear from God when we ask for wisdom is that he knows that we're not going to do what he tells us anyway. And so he won't give us a word. Sometimes he will, even in that case. But sometimes he knows we're not going to do it, so he doesn't give us a word. Look at, look at the next few verses there. That's kind of the point here. It says, but let him ask in faith, believing with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, because he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know, I know a lot of unstable Christians, people that are tossed to and fro by the wind. They're, they're like an unanchored ship being blown in the wind, and there's, there's no direction, and they wonder why. Well, let me tell you why. When God gives you a word of wisdom, you have to be prepared to believe that word and you have to be prepared to obey that word. Or otherwise, you might not receive a word. And listen, if you get a word from God, the first thing you've got to do, you've got to believe it especially when it's one of those supernatural words you know comes from God. You might not like the word. I didn't like the word that I was going to have to work on a PhD. But I knew it had come from God, and I had to mark that down. You, gotta, you write it in a diary. You, you write it on a notepad where you have the list of answered prayers. Or you just mark it in your mind. Usually when God gives you a word of wisdom, it is so supernatural that you never forget it. You don't have to write it down. You don't have to mark it down. But if you don't do that, the devil's going to come immediately and try to get you to doubt that word. Circumstances are going to come against you that are going to make you doubt that word. Time is going to come against you because God gives you a word of wisdom. And he tells you, I want you to work on a Ph.D. or whatever. And a Ph.D. doesn't happen in a year. It happens in five years. You begin to doubt. And so all of these things come against you. So you've got to mark it down and you've got to draw a line in the sand and you've got to say, I'm going to believe and I'm going to count it all joy as I fulfill this word that God has given me. There's a great case study on people who play games with God when they ask for wisdom. And I, I see it over and over again in my own life and in other people's life. And God, God's not pleased with that. Go with me over to Jeremiah. Go back to Jeremiah. Chapter 42. We're going to look at a little story here for a minute. Let me set the story up. Jeremiah 42, while you're, while you're looking for Jeremiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, go, go to the Psalms and then start heading back towards James. In a few books, you'll find Jeremiah. It's one of the larger books in the Bible. But let me set the setting for you. The Israelites have rebelled against God. They've gone into captivity. But God left a remnant in the land. He left a remnant uh, of Jews. And they actually had it better than all the other Jews who had gone off into various countries. But they got to stay in the land. They were more likely they were farmers and they were farming the land. And, and uh, the Babylonians allowed them to stay there but really it wasn't it wasn't anything like they'd had it before they had lost their freedom uh, they were under the yoke of Babylon they were paying heavy taxes 
uh, they had to do anything the Chaldeans told them to do. And so, so they didn't like it. And they, Nebuchadnezzar appoints a puppet king named Gedaliah. And Gedaliah is assassinated by Ishmael, who is not a Jew. And let me tell you what, Nebuchadnezzar was one tough dude. And they were afraid that Nebuchadnezzar was going to hear about this assassination and he was going to blame it on the Jews and he was going to bring his armies back down there and, and, and he was going to destroy them. And, and you, you could understand why they would be fearful in this situation. So they come up with this idea that they're going to cut and run and they're going to go back to Egypt. Does that ring a bell? Where did all this start? In Egypt. You think maybe God wanted them back in Egypt? If he wanted them in Egypt, he would never would have took them out of there. They were going back to Egypt and back. They had forgotten all about Egypt. And so, picking up the story in chapter 42, listen to what it says. It says, now all the captains of the forces, verse number one, Johanan, the son of Korea, uh, Jesaniah, and the son of Hoshaniah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near. And they said to Jeremiah, the prophet, please let our petition be acceptable to you and pray for us to the Lord your God for all this remnant, since we are left but a few of many, as you can see, that the Lord your God may show us the way in which we should walk and the thing which we should do. Now, you, you understand what they're asking for? They're asking for a word of wisdom. Then Jeremiah, the prophet, said to them, I have heard indeed, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your words, and it shall be that whatever the Lord answers you, I will declare it to you. I will keep nothing back from you. So they said to Jeremiah, let the Lord be true and faithful, witnesses between us. And if we do not do according to everything which the Lord your God sends us, sends us by you, whether it is pleasing or displeasing. You know, when we get a word from the Lord, we got to obey it, whether it's pleasing or displeasing. They, but they said, hey, that's great. We will obey it no matter what. We will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send you, that we, it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. Well, they sound awful religious and awful pious, don't they? I don't know how many people pray for a word of wisdom and, and they say, you know, whatever the Lord says, oh, pastor, pray for me. Whatever the Lord says, I'm going to do that. Then you tell them what they need to do and they do just the opposite. So, so, so and it happened. After 10 days, now, now, if you want to get a word from the Lord, you can't go in, watch nine hours of TV, and go in and give the Lord two minutes asking for wisdom, and then walk back and watch nine more hours of TV and expect to hear from him. You're not going to hear from him. Jeremiah diligently sought the Lord. He fasted. He prayed for 10 days. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he called Johanan, the son of Karad, all the captains of the forces which were with him and all the people from the least even to the greatest and said to them, thus says the Lord God, Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel to whom you sent me to present your petition before him. If you will still remain in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down. In other words, if you'll stay here, I'm going to bless you and I will plant you and not pluck you up for I will relent concerning the disaster that I brought upon your nation. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon of whom you're afraid because he's just a puppet in my hand. You know, we say, well, I got to do this. I got to do this. I'm afraid of my boss. I'm afraid of losing my job. I'm afraid of Barack Obama. I'm afraid of Governor Jindal, whatever. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. 
Who's in control of all of this? God's in control of all of it. That's what he tells them. Do not be afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. He's ruthless, but don't be afraid of him, for I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. And I will show you mercy like you've never seen, that he may have mercy on you. I'll put it in his heart to have mercy on you and cause you to return to your own land. But if you say we will not dwell in this land and you disobey the voice of the Lord your God, saying, no, but we will go to the land of Egypt where we will see no war, nor hear the sound of trumpet, nor be hungry for bread, and there we shall dwell. How often do we do that? Our plan is better than God's plan. So we don't want to listen to God's plan, because God's plan is tough. And I don't like the situation I am, so I'm, I've, got better, I've got greener grass on the other side. Then listen to the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Listen, all of us. Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, if you wholly set your face to enter Egypt and to go dwell there, then it shall be that the sword which you feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. The famine of which you were afraid shall follow close after you there in Egypt, and there you shall die. Oh, he's just kidding about that. God takes it very seriously when he gives us a word and we don't obey that word. He takes it very seriously when we don't ask him for a word and we just do things our own way. You know, these guys weren't going to obey God. They had it set in their mind what they were going to do. They were hypocrites. They had deceived themselves, as James says. They were deceiving themselves. And listen to what happened. Listen to what Jeremiah says. He says, The Lord has said concerning you, O remnant of Judah, verse number 19, do not go to Egypt. Do not go to Egypt. Know certainly that I have admonished you this day. For you were hypocrites in your hearts when you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God and according to all that the Lord your God says. So declare to us and we will do it uh, so declare to us and we will do it. And this day I have declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God or anything which he has sent, has sent you by me. Now therefore certainly, now know certainly that you will die by the sword, by the famine and by the pestilence in the place where you desire to go. You know what God had told them? You go down to Egypt, and the hedge that I placed around you is coming down. And you're going down with it. You know what they did? They took flight and went to Egypt. And you talk about the guy that got the worst deal ever. They took Jeremiah with him. Poor Jeremiah, the prophet. He goes down there and they kill him. And they die. Man, you see how serious God takes this stuff? That's why it's, it's, it's easy to say there's a God of the Old Testament and there's a God of the New Testament. The God's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's the same God. And just as seriously as God took this breach of promise 
from the Israelites when they disobeyed the word of God. He just as seriously takes that breach when we disobey the word of God. I was waiting for the lightning to crash, Jesse. Remember last time we were teaching this? The lightning crashed about this time. It's serious stuff. Seeking the wisdom of God, counting it all joy, trusting God. Those are serious admonitions that James gives us there. Let me go back for a minute and finish the story I was telling you. Once God told me to work on the Ph.D., I had a lot of stuff to do just to get into the program. I had to take another class. I had to take some more German. I didn't have enough German. I had to take German. I had to study for the GRE. I had to pass. The, I had to do well on the GRE. I had to take the GRE. I had interviews with professors. I had uh, entrance exams I had to take. Bridget can tell you about some of these things. She's been through this. And I had all sorts of stuff I had to do. And I, I, me and the patient person that I am, I wanted to get this done as fast as I could. So I got it done really fast so I could get into the program in the spring. And that fall, I went to the post office there at the seminary, and I got my mail, and there was the letter from, from the committee. I had to go before a committee and be interviewed by the committee, and there was the letter from the committee, and I'm opening it up and seeing when I'm starting. And it says, uh, it was a rejection letter. We, will not, we can't take you in the Ph.D. program right now. Uh, because of our accreditation process, there's only one slot available, and we've given it to one of the professors. They didn't say this, but this is what they did. We gave it to one of the professor's graders, and you're not going to get in. But please apply for next fall. Well, I wasn't applying for nothing. I got that letter, and I went home, and I was packing. I said, I'm leaving seminary. I'm getting out of the ministry. And I'm going back into business. That's where I left from. I'm going back into business. I'm going to do my own thing, Lord. But Lord, I'll pray about it first. And I pray, well, so I prayed about it. And, I, and then I just, I'll flip my Bible open and see what the Lord says. I flipped it to Jeremiah 42. And it was clear as a bell to me. If you go back to Egypt... If you go back to what you were doing before, the hedge is going to come down. The hedge is going to come down, and you're going to perish. You're going to be destroyed. And I was in so much trouble back then. I, I was so foolish to even think I could go back into the business world. You know, I did reapply for the Ph.D. program that fall. And five years later, I finished but I made it a very difficult five years because I never made the choice to count it all joy. And I got bitter and I got cynical even though I had a word from God. And I doubted. And I would pray, Lord, let me leave, let me quit. Jeremiah 42, Jeremiah 42. Lord, let me leave, let me quit. 
I'm not saying there were some times there when I had some joy, but, but for the most time, I was cynical. And I spent what could have been the five best years of my life living in misery at most of the time. See, that's our choice. God had given me a great opportunity. He had given me, he had given me a, a, just, I mean, a, a year after that, I was pastor at a church that I really wanted to pastor. If I hadn't been in the PhD program, I wouldn't have gotten to pastor that church. I mean, God had given me all sorts of opportunities. And I could have spent all of that time in joy, but I didn't. I mean, these lessons that are here in these first few verses of James and in the rest of the book of James are verses that will help you live a victorious Christian life. Because although there's going to be time when we're on the mountaintops, most of the time it's down and to the valley we go. If you want to learn how to live in the valley, then Go home and read the book of James and stick with this study and, and I promise you, you'll be blessed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for what you're teaching us through this book and so far and what we're going to be able to learn, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. I just ask that, Lord, we are people who, no matter what situation you, play, you place us in, Lord, that we begin to trust you. And we do begin to count it all joy in the various trials that we face. Lord, we can only do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask you to bless us. In Christ's name I pray.
long or difficult the valley we are in, there's always a mountaintop that we can view. And that's the hill of Calvary on Mount Moriah where Jesus shed his blood for our sin so that we can count it all joy when we fall into various trials. For, quoting from Romans 8.32, For if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things we need to live joyfully in this life? Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Y'all want to stand with we'll close this up. 